Well, we are in Acts chapter 11. Let me invite you to turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 11. Uh, if you are uh, joining us today for the first time or the first time in a while, we are in a series where we are walking through the book of Acts. Such an important, uh, such an important book in our Bible because we witness the transformation literally of the world person by person, city by city. And we are in uh, chapter 11 where things are really starting to pick up. If you were here with us last week, we saw from chapter 10 uh, the story of Peter and Cornelius, how God used Peter to go to a Gentile where you see the spread of the gospel going beyond the borders, fulfilling the promises of Acts chapter 1 verse 8. And really what we're seeing here in the middle of the book, we're, we're seeing that theme continued. And what happens here in chapter 11, kind of just a little bit of a setup for our text that we'll focus in on today, is the first part of chapter 11, we witness Peter uh, reporting what happened. So if you can imagine, here you have this devout Jew, this, this man of God who gets this vision, who goes to this guy named Cornelius. It's kind of one of these really unique stories that Acts is filled with. The point being, though, Peter, it says in chapter 11, verse 1, it says, Now the apostles and brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. So beginning in chapter 11, verse 5, through chapter, or excuse me, through that same chapter in verse 18, we see basically a synopsis of what happened last week in chapter 10. If you don't remember that, let me quickly summarize it. Peter's on the roof. He has a vision. Do you remember what that vision was of? It's kind of weird. It was of a big blanket filled with animals. And Peter was given a piece of instruction three times from the Lord that he didn't know how to deal with, how to process. Do you remember what the Lord told him to do? Rise up and kill and eat. And Peter's like, that's not me. I'm not, I'm not a Fogo to Chow guy. I'm more of a Panera Bread guy. You know, he, 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 doesn't, he, doesn't, he, he looks at that. He says, don't you know who I am? I'm a Jew. But God tells him what God, he says, what the Lord says to him, don't call uncommon what God calls clean or common. The idea is that Peter is learning that God has a mission to save and transform not just the Jews, but the Gentiles alike. So Peter goes to Cornelius. Uh, as Cornelius sent messengers for him, it's kind of this amazing story of how the gospel transcends into the lives and homes of a Gentile people. But if you can imagine those who were Jews, those who didn't receive that vision that Peter received, they're a little bit skeptical. They're a little bit concerned. Like, what are you doing? Don't you understand who you are, Peter? So Peter relays to them the story of what Cornelius hears from God, of what Peter hears from God, and how all the house of Cornelius comes to know the Lord. So that's the backdrop of what chapter 11 is filled with. And then we see a phrase in verse 19 that we've seen before, and that is this. I'm going to quickly read this to you. It says, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, are you ready? Traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except the Jews. 
So what we have here is the gospel starting to spread. And if you remember back to chapter 9 when there was that great, or excuse me, chapter 7 and 8 when there was that great persecution, Stephen was stoned. We see Saul before his conversion, the Christians are basically being driven out of Jerusalem. Now, where we might think that's a bad thing or an unfortunate thing, how does God use it? God uses it to fulfill his promises, that the gospel would go from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to where? The uttermost parts of the earth. So Antioch, the place that we're going to talk about today, is a place that is a little over 300 miles away from Jerusalem. I want you to think about that. Traveling 300 miles even today is a little bit of a daunting task, right? You got to get the car ready. Maybe, maybe you have to fill it up once or twice. It's, it's a good, you know, depending on how fast you drive, it's a good few hours in the car. It's a significant trip. Can you imagine how far 300 miles would have been to people who either had to travel maybe by foot, maybe by sea? This was a place that was well beyond the purview of Jerusalem. So what we find here is the gospel is starting to work. The reason Antioch is such a significant city and the reason we're just narrowing in on just a few verses today is that in the book, or excuse me, in Antioch, we find out that Christians, excuse me, I just gave it away. We find out that these people, these followers of Jesus, receive the name Christian. So today we're going to talk about what is in this name Christian. And the way we're going to do that is by looking and uncovering the new purposes God has for his people. Because when we uncover the purposes, the new purposes that God has for his new people, we're quickly going to learn what it looks like for us to be a Christian. What it looks like, what it what these followers of Jesus were identified by here in Acts chapter 11, verse 26. I think a very important text for us to consider today as we understand who we are and essentially why we're here and what we're to do. So let's pray. Father, we need you this morning. Give us grace to hear from you, to listen to your words. And Lord, would you change us? And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. How many of you know what your name means? Any of you know what your name means? I see some hands raised. Zach, what's your name mean? <laughs> okay, Zachary means re- remembrance of God. That's awesome. Ben, what's your name mean? Son of my right hand. Anyone have a name that, like, you know what it means, but it has, like, no real value to it or no like, significance? Garrett? Okay. <laughs> Garrett, you're a lot of things. I don't know if I would ever qualify or categorize you as a warrior swift with the spear. Now, I think, I think you know, over time, people, uh, the names people received, I think especially uh, in the context that we see Scripture, there's a lot of purpose behind names. I think today, honestly, you know, there may be meaning behind names, but I know at least when Megan and I named our four kiddos, it was like, what sounds good? What do we like? I think, I think sometimes there's, Maybe there's a meaning to our name, but how we receive that is just kind of maybe random or a preference of our parent. Um, maybe, but maybe there's a, maybe some of you possess like a family name with significance. Any of you named after your father? Anyone? 
I see one, two, three. Okay. I, I'm, I, my name uh, is Kenneth Charles Thompson II. I'm named after my dad. And so uh, there's some unique family significance in that, even though uh, the name itself it has no real like uh, individual like uniqueness. But collectively, it, it means something to me to be named after my dad. I got, out of curiosity, how, how many of you have no idea what your name means? Yeah, yeah. yeah okay, okay, fair enough. Um, what's interesting is that uh, we see here in, in, uh, in Acts 11 that the Christians in Antioch, I keep doing that, the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. And here's what's interesting about this. This was not a name that they gave themselves. This was a name that was given to them and I think what's even more interesting is that it was given to them, and not in a derogatory sense, but it wasn't given to them by like, it wasn't given to them by, by like their buddy. Hey, I'm going to call you a Christian. It was given to them by either the, the, the governmental leadership or maybe even some of the military. It was like those people, those Christians, those followers of Christ, and it's given to them, and however, though, it has, I believe, significant meaning. And I think the way we're going to uncover and, and see that meaning is by seeing how these people live. Because it was by the way these people lived in Antioch that they received this title. And so I think when we look further into this text today, we're going to see very clearly that God's new people possess a new purpose, and those purposes identify what it means to be a Christian. When we see here in Acts chapter 11 that these disciples were first called Christians, I want to read to you a quote here from author J.B. Polhill. He, he says that the term Christianoi consists of the Greek word for Christ, Messiah, Christos, and the Latin ending, I-A-N-U-S, meaning belonging to or identified by. Listen to this. this. I find this fascinating. The term only occurs in two other places in the New Testament. So think about this. A word that to us is almost ubiquitous for, for who we are and what we believe is only used twice besides this occurrence here in Acts chapter 11. I think what's interesting about that is over time, this word that originally was given in almost, not a derogatory way as I mentioned, but maybe a little bit of a condescending way or, or uh, in, in a way that maybe the disciples didn't necessarily want to be called, is now today a word that we look at with fondness, a word that we look at with almost like, this is who I am. What's also, I think, fascinating, in all three instances that the word is used in the New Testament, it is used by outsiders to designate Christian. Evidently, the term was not originally used by Christians of themselves. Now, even further, the early usage in Antioch is perhaps indicative of two things. Number one, it is the sort of term Gentiles would have used and perhaps reflects the success of Antioch's Gentile mission fellow Gentiles in this city were looking at one another and using this term to designate those who became followers of Jesus. And this is what's interesting. I think maybe even why to us today there's a little bit of fondness or a little bit of greater purpose with this. We're all Gentiles. So our very 
uh, forefathers of our faith came to know and love this term because it described who they were. Here in a city that was not originally where God began his work, but certainly where God is continuing his work. Secondly, it reflects that Christianity was beginning to have an identity of its own and no longer was viewed as a totally Jewish entity. Now, I realize that may just seem like a fact, academic, but think about this. When we read those words, I want you to not think of it as just a fact to tuck away, but something as a promise to believe in, and that is God is fulfilling the very words that he gave to his people. When you look back in Acts chapter 1, God makes a promise and God gives a plan for the gospel to go to all the worlds, to Jew and the Gentiles. And guess what we are witnessing? God fulfilling his promises. Now, I think we, we take that for granted. Like when you read through the story of Scripture, Think about this. This is a city that was hundreds of miles away where now the work of God is exploding. And it's not among the people who grew up with the law, who grew up in a religious home. It's with the people who lived in opposition to their God. Matter of fact, the city of Antioch was not like this great religious city where all of the the families grew up going to church on Sunday. Matter of fact, the city of Antioch was a city known for its immorality. It was known to be this massive uh, mix of, of cultures and expressions and religions. And now all of a sudden, we find Christianity invading the city because God fulfills his promises. And God uses people like you and like me to literally transform the world around them. So all that's a setup because I think what we're going to see here and we're going to move through this fairly quickly is that God uses his new people who have new purposes to transform person by person, city by city. So now even here in Antioch, a city that was known for its immorality is now known as a city that's marked by the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's good stuff. God's working. So that being said, I want to look today at what it means to identify as a Christian. What are these three new purposes God's people have? The first purpose that we find here in chapter 11 is that God's people have a new purpose to share the gospel. It says in verse 19, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. That's a problem. But we find hope. There were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who what? Who on coming to Antioch, what did these men do? They spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. You see, these followers of Jesus, these men of Cyprus and Cyrene, did not possess racial or religious prejudice. They shared the gospel freely with those in Antioch. Notice how Luke describes them as preaching the Lord Jesus. We find two specific emphases here. One on the act of preaching, but also on the object, the Lord Jesus. Consequently, The call of the gospel was not just to embrace a savior, 
but also a sovereign Lord. Now, I want you to think about this and let this set in for a moment. We all want the benefits of calling on a Savior, don't we? Like, we all want the experience of knowing our sins are forgiven, of knowing that when we die, we'll go to heaven. We want that, 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 that wonderful joy from knowing that there's a Savior who loves us. But I want you to take just a minute here and understand, when these people went into Antioch, they were saying, we have a Savior, his name is Jesus, but he's also our Lord. And I want you just to think about that with me. What would be the implication of preaching the gospel of a Savior and Lord? It's not just that God wants to forgive us of our sins. He is calling us and inviting us into an obedient relationship to follow after him. So what we find here is that this gospel came as a knife like cutting through butter because it was a black or white situation. Either you were going to follow Jesus as your Lord and Savior and live life radically and totally for him, or you were just going to follow what was going on in that city there. And I think what happens for us is that we want all the benefits of a Savior but kind of buck at the priority of obedience, of following after a Lord. And when we see, however, these Christians in Antioch embracing their Savior and Lord, you know what they start to do? They start to share his gospel. And look what we find God does in relationship to their obedience. Look further into verse 21. It says, and the what? The hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. You see, this phrase here, the Lord's hand, is an Old Testament metaphor for God's power and favor. And what we find here in the text is that God is blessing. He's putting his power and his favor on these people and look what they are doing. They're sharing the gospel with those around them. And consequently, this gospel is working. The Spirit is convicting because guess what happens? A great number of these people do what? They turned to the Lord. Notice how Luke notes that this great number who believes it says, turns to the Lord. This literally means to change one's mind or course of action. You know what we call this today? It's kind of a funny word, repentance. It's a turning. And we combine repentance with faith, and these are the essential requirements for our salvation, with baptism being the outward expression of our turning to Christ as our Savior. Author D.G. Peterson notes that this description parallels a deliberate attempt to show how God worked in Antioch as he did initially in Jerusalem. Here's what's happening. People of God are committed to following their Lord, and guess what they're doing? They're living out this new purpose of sharing the gospel with those around them. And guess what God is doing with these people? 
It says his hand is upon them. He has his favor upon them, and great number of people are turning to the Lord. Now, when we read through this narrative, we must, not, we, you know, we must be careful not to prescribe actions in a descriptive context. You know, for example, I wouldn't tell you that you need to sit on your roof and pray so that when you do like Peter, you'll receive a crazy vision. So, like, so when we read through the book of Acts, this is a narrative. It's descriptive. Yet at the same time, we witness in Acts repeatedly God blessing his people when they share his gospel. In Acts 2, Acts 4, Acts 6, and now in Acts 11, we see a pattern of God putting his hand upon his people when they share his gospel. And literally, cities are transformed. Lives are changed when people share the good news of Jesus. Like, now, just for a moment with me, I want you to contemplate what we're seeing here. There is a pattern where God chooses to bless his people. And that pattern consists of God's people sharing the good news of their Lord and their Savior wherever they go. And we witness, not just once, not just twice, not just three times, but now at least four times here in Acts, God's people with God's message and God's spirit, not any different than you and me, out where they live and where they work and where they play, sharing the good news of Jesus. And guess what happens? People are saved. Like, this is not something that we couldn't experience today. This is not something that we couldn't witness in Oldsmar, in Trinity, in Tampa, in Clearwater, and all around us. I think the reality is, though, this, either the newness, or excuse me, or maybe the gospel seems either old to us, or maybe we've compartmentalized so much. Maybe it's that we're not remembering and recalling the joy of our salvation. Because apparently these people took the gospel and their relationship with Jesus like pretty seriously. And look what God does. His favor, his hand is upon them. And literally lives are changed repeatedly. Now, I would love and I pray for this to be the reality of the people in this room right now. That we would see what God can do with ordinary people, with an extraordinary message to see lives changed. You heard of one this morning. You heard of Garrett coming into a saving relationship because of his friend Ben. Both of these people, you know, I would love to see and I pray to see stories like this continue through you. This is what God's people do. This is how God's people were identified as Christians because they were people who shared the gospel. But they were also people who strengthened the church. Look at verse 22. We find this second purpose the second new purpose of God's new people, to strengthen the church. 
It says in verse 22, this report, the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. So what's happening to Antioch is traveling. And just like they sent Peter to Philip, remember that? They sent Peter to Philip. Now they're sending Barnabas into the city of Antioch. And when Barnabas comes, he sees the grace of God. And he was glad. And he exhorted and encouraged them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast, steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added again to the Lord. You see, here's how the church is strengthened. It's strengthened through encouraging words. Barnabas comes in and he authenticates the church growth here in Antioch by his initial reaction, joy, and his encouragement to perseverance. You see, when Barnabas arrives in Antioch, far from criticizing what's going on, what does he do? He's glad. He sees the work of God and he's filled with joy. See, we, we need people like Barnabas in the church. They're peacemakers. They're go-betweens. They don't seek glory for themselves, but they seek to bring out the best in others. I remember the, one, of the, one of the first times uh, that, that I was really wrestling with um, the call to pastoring, the call to planting. I was at a church in North Carolina, and it was on a, a Sunday, like a, like a Sunday school before the main service. I had the opportunity to teach, and I was teaching through uh, a, a book, uh, a, a series in Hebrews, and I just felt maybe a little overwhelmed by it. I, I, I felt like the task to be daunting. Uh, I had spoken to, uh, to, to youth before, but now I was in a, teaching an adult setting, and I was working through this material, and I remember after one day teaching, this guy, his name was Barry Smith uh, in, in Brevard, North Carolina. Uh, Barry came up to me, and, and Barry was a good old boy, and he's like, hey, Ken, I just want to tell you something, brother. He's uh, like, I, I think, I think God, God's called you to be a pastor. And, and I remember sitting there in that moment, and, and little did Barry know that for the past several weeks, I've been praying and asking, Lord, you know my heart. You know what I want to do. I was working at a camp. I, was, I, I felt very far from an opportunity to pastor. And in that moment, when Barry came up, and just in the most genuine and humble way as I can, you should be a pastor, brother. <laughs> I can't tell you how definitive that moment was for me. Now, even though it, it's just a, a, a casual interaction, Having that guy come along with an affirming, encouraging word was exactly what I needed in that moment to not just grow my faith, but to take steps of obedience. It took a little bit of courage, discernment, energy from Barry to do that. But in reality, did it require that much from Barry to come up to me and be like, good job, man, you should be a pastor. Was it that much? Yes or no? No. But now here, eight, nine years later, I'm still recalling the encouragement from Barry Smith. Now, when, when we come in on Sundays, I think we're often like, you know, whether it's like we've got something on our mind, we're, we're kind of compartmentalized, we're thinking about maybe what we have to do here, what we're doing later. Like, we are missing out from seeing a happier and healthier body 
Because we're not committed to that type of encouragement. Like Ben spoke two weeks ago. That is a vulnerable place for a young man before this church. Coming alongside Ben, whether it's you have already or now, and saying, Ben, man, I'm praying for you. I'm supporting. I'm encouraged by you. I can't tell you how far that will go. Matter of fact, there was a, a, a gentleman here, I'll leave him nameless, who said something to me encouraging about Ben after that Sunday, and that, that helped my faith. Like, I can't tell you the dynamic of how much encouragement can help us grow and be strengthened as a church. And all it requires is us being willing to not think about ourselves as much, to look and listen to the lives of others, and to be able to speak a word of encouragement. But the problem is, we are going to be unable to do that if we're not understanding and recalling who we are as believers who have been saved by grace, who have been called by God, who know this glorious gospel. Barnabas, man, he goes after it. He not only encourages these believers here in Antioch through, uh, through just his joy and, and, his, um, and his encouraging words, we also find that Barnabas strengthens the church through his affirming actions. After all this has taken place here in Antioch, you can imagine just for a moment with me that you have all of these disciples, all of these new Christians who have come to know Jesus, and you can see the weight of their growth, of their maturity in Barnabas. So guess what Barnabas does? He leaves Antioch. Doesn't that seem counterintuitive? Like, here this guy comes, he sees what's going on, and he's like, this is awesome. Y'all are doing really well. I'm gonna be right back. And guess where Barnabas goes? Barnabas goes probably, he had already come 300 miles from Jerusalem to Antioch. He now goes about 100 miles northwest to a city of Tarsus to find a guy named Saul. Why is this important to us? Because listen, when Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And guess what they do? For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. This author that I referred to earlier, J.B. Polehill, he knows that the text of Acts is compressed and selective. But the most likely reconstruction of the chronology here indicates, are you ready for this? This blew me away, that some 10 years or so had elapsed from the time that Paul first departed from Cilicia to when Barnabas set out to find him. I want you to think about this. You all remember Saul's conversion, right? Acts chapter 9, Paul is gloriously saved. Who's the guy that vouches for Paul in Jerusalem that his conversion is legit? Do you remember who that was? What's his name? Barnabas. Why is that significant? Guess what Barnabas is doing now? He is going after to find that dude, the same dude that he stood before in Jerusalem and said to the other apostles, this guy is legit. Now Paul had, he had to leave Jerusalem because his life was in danger. He's up in Tarsus. Ten years had gone by. Now why is that significant? We struggle to have relationships for ten months. 
We struggle to be faithful in encouraging someone for 10 months. Here Barnabas is, for 10 years, he's had Paul on his mind. And he goes after this guy. Can you imagine like what the cinematic like setting of that would be? Of Paul, or excuse me, of Barnabas walking into Tarsus looking for Saul. Like, you know, knowing, knowing you know, who we know is Paul, knowing what Paul is probably telling someone about Jesus or serving somebody, how awesome. Like, I would, I, would have, I would love to be a fly on the wall to see that moment when Barnabas finds Saul. Like, think about how encouraging that would have been for this man, Saul, that we know and now read multiple letters in our Bibles today, what it would have been like for 10 years to go by and then the one day bump into your friend Barnabas again. And Barnabas is like, guess what, man? There's work to do. And this action that Barnabas takes pulls Saul out of Tarsus into Antioch and now we see literally lives being changed through the encouraging and affirming actions of Barnabas. I want to ask you this. Who has God put on your heart right now that needs your presence of encouragement and affirmation in their life? Like, think about, and just process this with me, Think about the dynamic of what we're witnessing here. Barnabas mediates for Paul in Jerusalem, seeks after Paul in Tarsus. And through the encouragement and affirmation of Barnabas in the life of Paul, like we are benefiting here today thousands and thousands of years later. Think about the dynamic opportunity you have to literally change the world around you person by person just through simply encouraging and affirming and vouching for somebody. I think we don't understand the power of this type of encouragement. There's someone who needs you to believe in them, to vouch for them, to support them, to push them forward, to love them, and to mediate for them as Jesus mediates for you. But our problem is we're so consumed with ourselves. Like we have to get past ourselves. The reason Barnabas could go for hundreds of miles to encourage and affirm these dear believers is because he was over himself and in love with Jesus. And so literally his life was no longer about the gospel of Barnabas, but the gospel of Jesus. And lives were changed. And Barnabas is the same type of person that you and I are. He was a human who possessed the same spirit and the same faith that we have. As a new person that's a part of God's family, you can share the gospel, you can strengthen the church, but also you can serve the needy. And this is where we see the third purpose on display It says, now in those days, the prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. And we find out this took place in the days of Claudius. But notice verse 29. 
So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to do what? To send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And I love how it says in verse 30, and they what? They did. They did so. It wasn't that they just thought about it. It wasn't that they just had their budgets ready. They actually gave. They committed themselves to this. It says, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So apparently now we see that there's this need, not up in Antioch, but now back down in Judea and Jerusalem. And these people who are identified by the name Christian, the same name that we identify with today are people that shared the gospel. They were people that strengthened the church, but now they were people that served those in need. And notice how they served. It says, everyone according to his ability. This is what I find fascinating about this. They knew how much they could give. There was an intentionality there with these disciples that allowed them to assess what they were capable of doing. Now, why am I pointing that out? We have just walked through a season in our church where we have evaluated the use of our time, the use of our talents, and the use of our treasure. And this is not just an exercise I'm looking to give you because you're bored or need something to do. I'm trying to share with you that when people get serious about the mission of God, like we find here in Acts, the world can be changed. And I don't know, like, like I want you to believe this with your whole heart, but not just to believe it, but to obey it, to live like Jesus is not just your Savior, but he's your Lord. And so that the commands of God aren't just in your head, but they dwell in your heart and they flow through your hands and the world around you is changed. Like it began in a room in Acts with the people about this many. And now here we're witnessing just a few years later that thousands and thousands of people in countless of cities are being impacted by the same gospel that you and I believe. Why can't that be here? Why can't that be happening around us? I've got news and it's good. It can be. When God's people live with their new purposes of sharing the gospel, of strengthening the church, and serving the needy, we find that dynamic change and transformation occurs. These people who are Christians were known by how they lived. They were known by their new purposes. These people shared the gospel, they served the needy, they strengthened the church. You see, like, I think we, we, we certainly understand this conceptually, right? We understand that as a Christian, I, I, I ought to live differently. Like, we, we know there are things we ought to do and ought not to do. I, th I think we get that. But, like, when... when I, when it actually comes down to fulfilling it, I, I think there's a struggle. And uh, like, for instance, 
this, this past week or two weeks ago, I, I, took, I took my son, uh, Nolan, to a Tigers game. And that, and that may not be super significant to you, but I grew up in Detroit. I'm a Tigers fan. And, and I wanted to, like, introduce Nolan into, into what it's like to be a fan of Detroit Tigers. Kind of depressing, but just bear with me here. Um, last summer, however, we, we visited our, our family up in South Bend, Indiana. And in South Bend, they uh, have a Cubs, Chicago Cubs minor league team. And not only do they have a Chicago Cubs minor league team, they, they built this amazing uh, replica of Wrigley Field in South Bend uh, with, filled with like, just incredible like, food vendors. It's, it's like this awesome kids family experience. Then on top of that, my, my in-laws are all huge Cubs fans. And uh, my, my little nephew, Harrison, uh, loves the Cubs. And they have this little Alexa in, in their kitchen. And, and, and he asks it to play the Cubs song. And I'm going to spare you, but you know what I'm talking about? The Chicago Cubs. Uh, uh, I'm not, I'm not going to sing it because I have a terrible voice. But there, there's like this little catchy song about, hey, Chicago's going to win today. You know, I, it's Anyways, they would play that in the kitchen, and Nolan would just get so excited, like, Dad, the Cubs, I love the Cubs. And, and I'm starting thinking, hmm. <laughs> so, I mean, and, and because of his love for that song and his remembrance of that experience, now about a year later, he's like, Dad, we're Cubs fans. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to change this. So I took him over to this baseball game, and you, as you can imagine, you know, I'm, I'm making the Tigers sound like they came out of heaven. So I'm, I'm, I'm taking Nolan to the pro shop. I'm getting him a little baseball bat, getting him a little Tigers hat. Uh, Nolan, Nolan kind of like thinks in absolute. So he's like, Dad, do, do Tigers always win? Tigers always win, son. So I'm, I'm, indoctrinating, I'm indoctrinating Nolan with, with how good it is to be a Tigers fan. And, and, and while we're sitting there, he looks at me he's like, Dad, we don't root for the Cubs. We root for the Tigers, right? I'm like, that's right, son. And he's like, we don't, we don't, wear, we don't wear Cubs hats. We wear a Tigers hat. That's right, son. And over the course of the game, you could see he was starting to get hooked. Now, it took a little bit of expense, of my expense to do that. But here's the point. My son was not going to be a Cubs fan. He was going to be a Tigers fan. And with that, there were certain expectations that are now part of his life. As a Tigers fan, you don't root for the Cubs. As a Tigers fan, you don't wear Cubs jerseys. As a Tigers fan, you cheer when the Tigers succeed and you're sad when they don't. Like, we all get that. Who we are affects what we do. If I'm a Tigers fan, I don't cheer for the Cubs. If we're a Christian someone who identifies with Jesus as our Savior and our Lord, you know what we do? We share the gospel. We strengthen the church. And we serve those in need. That's what we do because that's who we are. As we, as we conclude today, I, I, I want to ask you a pointed question, and that is how is God, and specifically, where in your life is God speaking to? I'm not saying we need to, like, master these, because obviously there was something that Barnabas possessed as a gift of encouragement that was unique. There was something that these men of Cyprus and Serene possessed 
and sharing the gospel, that was unique. There was something that was very intentional about these disciples in Antioch where they knew exactly how much they could give. So when we think about sharing the gospel, strengthening the church, and serving the needy, my guess, as it at least was for me, God's going to be speaking to you in a particular area. And this may sound ironic. I just want to share mine with you. God has really spoken to me about sharing the gospel. I know the gospel. I believe the gospel. And, and I have no problem articulating it. But when I think about my roles and responsibilities as a pastor, I'm often feeling like, oh, you know, I'm spending time with this family in the church. I'm strengthening the church, and I'm, I'm trying to serve the needy. And, and I find myself either making excuses or, or just not planning intentionally to really be active in sharing the gospel. And as I was preparing and working through this, this sermon, God continually spoke to me and worked on my heart for not sharing the gospel like I ought to, not making the time and the effort to reach people that need Jesus. And I want to confess that before you, because if I'm going to be calling you into something, uh, I, I need to, as a pastor, be modeling that, be living in that. And I may not do it well, I may really struggle in it. But you know what really brought this to a head in my life? It wasn't just the preparation for the sermon. It was actually spending time with, with Garrett recently. Um, Garrett recently was sharing with me his heart for sharing the gospel and how God has used him. And, and like that strengthening of the church experience that Garrett and I were having is now working in my heart to share the gospel more. And I wanted to come before you today and say, pray for me. I, I want us as people to share the gospel, not because this is an act that we need to do from five to seven on Tuesday nights every other week. No, it's because of who we are. We don't root for the Cubs. <laughs> we root for the Tigers. We, we're a people who are Christians. We share the gospel. And it can be awkward. It, it doesn't always have to be planned. It can be wherever we go, whenever we go. But if I'm going to call you into this life, I need to confess that this has been a struggle for me in that I've not made the time and effort to go about it. I want to be honest and real before you. But I also want you to do the same. I want you to say, God, where are you speaking in my life? Do I need to be more of an encouragement to someone here? Are there people I need to serve? Uh, do I need to share the gospel? Because the sooner we come into an authentic place where we understand who we are and what we're to do, and the Spirit of God can work and convict and show, hey, Ken, this needs to change. It's going to lead to us being a healthier church. It's going to lead to change. Like, and you think, how do you know that? <laughs> like, we, like, we keep seeing this in Acts. We keep seeing it over and over and over again. And I'm going to be honest, I I want the glory of God just to break through in our lives, in our cities, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces. We have the Spirit. We have the same faith. We have the same Savior. We have the same Lord. So I think it just begins for us now saying, all right, where is God speaking? How is the Spirit convicting? And if Jesus is truly my Savior and Lord, how am I going to obey? Not if, but how.
That makes sense. This is a, it's a sobering time, but it's a sweet time. God can and will work through his people when they share the gospel, when they strengthen the church, and when they serve the needy. So let's, let's get about it. Let's get, about, let's get after doing this. Let's see what God can do in us and through us.